Blog Talk Radio. Hello, hello, I'm Laura Miles, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk the Podcast. On today's show, we are continuing our topic from last week for selecting therapy activities for toddlers. And I got so much feedback about that show from people who've said, you know, I liked so much what you said. I hadn't thought about it like that. Mom sent me emails and comments on the website that also echoed those same sentiments. So if you sent me one of those messages and I did not respond, thank you very much. I so appreciate that feedback. But today we're continuing this by talking about the really specific activity. So where do we go after we've talked about last week? considering a child's developmental level, and then looking at his regulatory state or his regulatory preferences. And then we finished up by talking a little bit about individual interest and preferences. And so today we are continuing by looking at that next step. After we've already decided, okay, this child might be two and a half, but he's really functioning back at that, say, 12 to 15-month level cognitively. You know, where do we go from there? Or this child is two and a half, but cognitively, they're fine. Their receptive language is exactly where we would hope it to be. It's just their expressive skills are lagging a little bit. So how do you know what activities are appropriate? How do you know how to plan or after you've gotten that initial piece of information that we talked about last week? And so let me just say, (laughs) as I do in all the shows that are part of a series, if you have not listened to last week's show, stop what you're doing turn this show off, go back and listen to show number 295 because this show really will hinge on lots of that information and I want you to be able to put all of this together and synthesize all of this information so that you are being as effective as you can be in your role as either a professional like I am who works with children with uh, speech language delays and disorders or more importantly if you're a parent because sometimes here's what happens with a parent. We'll get a little snippet, a little tip from here and there, and then we wonder, why isn't this working for me as well as I read or as well as somebody told me about it or as well as, you know, however you just kind of picked it up. Maybe you saw your own child's speech pathologist or an occupational therapist or whoever is working with your child. Maybe you saw them do something, and then you try to do it at home, and it doesn't work as well and you're feeling a little bit discouraged about that, usually it's because there's not enough um, background there. You're not, you watch them do the activity, but you didn't really understand everything that they were doing. And again, this is not to slam a parent. You are not supposed to know every single thing. Unless you are a therapist, unless you are a developmental professional, or an educator, you're not supposed to know all this. So don't take this as me saying, well, you didn't know what you were doing, because that's not what I mean at all. What I mean is you've got to really consider all of the factors that are going in. And sometimes here's the truth. The better a therapist is, the more it looks like all they're doing is playing (laughs) because they've gotten their skill set so refined that you don't even realize all of the different things that they may be doing to engage your child or all of the ways that they are cueing your child. And so all you know is, man, she's pretty good with kids or 
boy, she's a great player. I wish I could play like that. And how many times have we as speech pathologists or other kinds of therapists heard that? Like, you know, oh, I'd like to have your job. All you do is play. And, you know, that used to kind of upset me a little bit. And I would get a little bit offended like, you know, oh, there's so much more going on than that. And that's the truth. There is. When therapy is working like it should and your your therapist brain, your wheels are turning, you're getting such good ideas, you're thinking about things, you're you're just on it, there's a lot more going on than play, but I, I now I don't really get <laughs> as offended by that because I think, gosh, that's a compliment. She doesn't really realize, you know, I've had to work years for it to look this easy. And so if you're a therapist and kind of on either side of that opinion or or how you're feeling about that, you hopefully that will kind of help you turn it a little bit and you won't get so offended when somebody seems to kind of want to knock you a little bit when they're uh, giving you kind of that backhanded compliment. So anyway, let's kind of move on with this. Play is an important, important part of working with young children. And again, this does not matter what therapy service or what discipline we're referring to. It could be speech therapy. It could be OT. It could be PT. It could be developmental intervention or whatever you call it in your state, um, early intervention specialist, whatever your kind of therapy is called. Even when we're looking at preschool or 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 uh, uh, if your child sees a psychologist for anything, any any kind of direct service provision that we are implementing with toddlers and preschoolers, uh, play should be the main component of that, the backbone. And so again, when a parent kind of looks at it, especially if they haven't had a lot of interaction with a therapist and so it's, or if they haven't been to a meeting and the therapist hasn't explained exactly what therapy is supposed to look like and so a parent doesn't know, this will happen sometimes with grandparents or with, let's say, that a child is usually taken to or participates in therapy at home with a therapist with one parent and then suddenly the other parent is home and the other parent doesn't know, hasn't had direct experience with how therapy is supposed to look and so sometimes I can (laughs) over the years recall situations where the other parent was there and again it could have been mom or dad who's usually been there and the other one's home and I I can just kind of remember parents getting that look on their face like is is this really you know is this what we do this is kind of unexpected I sort of expected it to be a little bit more academic or a little more uh, formal than this is. So play is a huge, huge, huge part of what we do with all young children. And again, that is across disciplines. So let me talk about all that play and say that, and kind of tie it into last week's show, we have to match what we're doing in play or the therapy activities that we're choosing with the child's developmental level. And we've already talked about that even a little bit on today's show. We also have to take into account their strengths, meaning what they can and can't do. And it's always super, super important that we start with things that they can do. And with that, their individual interests and preferences plays a big role. And and here's why. And sometimes parents will allude to this. They'll say, you know, my therapist says that he doesn't seem to like puzzles or books or, you know, fill in the blank with whatever the kid doesn't like. So that's why we should do it in therapy, because we should be expanding his possibilities for activities 
We should be teaching him how to do a non-preferred activity. We should be helping him learn that he has to sit down here and be compliant, you know, all those things that we all have said or thought, blah, 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 blah. And all of those things are hopefully something that we can move a child toward. However, (laughs) at the very beginning, when you are first starting to work with a child, and this holds true whether you're a therapist or a parent, you really, really, really don't need to introduce a lot of non-preferred activities. Or if you do, you need to make it contingent on, hey, you do this little bit of me for me with this thing that you don't like, and boy, we are going to get to do the most fun thing in the world after that. You really, really, really should, I feel at the beginning, do everything you can to ensure participation and ensure motivation, meaning that you are going to set the stage and you are not going to do very much of anything that a kid doesn't like. You consider what he likes most and that he'll let you be a part of, and that's what you're going to use. So taking into account the child's individual likes are very, very very important. Now, that's all we're going to say about this, but let me kind of go ahead and mention I've written about this a lot in the new therapy manual. It's the Is It Autism Workbook, and, you know, I've mentioned it for weeks on the show Boy, I hope it's going to be out soon. I'm still refining and still revising. But it's there's a big section in that book that talks about all of these factors and why it's so important. And let me just say, it's particularly important for our little friends who have red flags for autism. And the reason that this population is a little bit different than toddlers in general is because of that inflexibility piece or that tendency to want everything to be the same. Now, toddlers in general are picky little people. (laughs) One of the hallmarks of two-year-olds, terrible twos, is that they kind of have really wide mood swings, right? And so a kid can go from loving something to hating something in about 10 seconds. And so my, my point of this for all toddlers, but especially for our children who are on the spectrum or who we think may go ahead and get that diagnosis is we really, really, really don't want to turn them off. We don't want to do anything that would have them link us with something that's unpleasant. Now, a parent you cannot avoid that you still have to feed a picky eater (laughs) you still have to bathe a dirty child so (laughs) I'm not really talking about that but I'm speaking to in terms of how we work with a child on language and especially if you're a therapist if you are a new person in that child's life you don't want them to associate you with their bad mood or with not liking something or with this lady makes me do this stuff that I absolutely despise and she doesn't seem to care too much about when I'm happy and when I'm not. And so my point here is we have to consider, again, all of those factors when we're picking therapy activities so that we can do everything we can to get a kid on board and to happily participating and happily wanting to do what we know he needs to do in order to make some progress with improving his communication skills. So last week's show talked a lot lot about that. So go back and listen if you haven't done that. But know that we're considering all of these things even as we move through what I've called in my uh, book, Teach Me to Talk, the Therapy Manual, the Activity Hierarchy for Toddlers. Now, if you have this book, jot down, uh, even as you're driving. (laughs) Well, maybe not if you're driving, but if you're listening 
this information is outlined in written form on page 225. And so I, I wanted to give that page number because somebody asked me about that in an email this week with, you know, you said you were, this is from the therapy manual, you know, tell me where to find that. I flipped through and I can't really figure out, you know, exactly what you're talking about. It's in Chapter 10, and this specific page that we're going to use today as our outline for the show is on page 225 from uh, Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual. So let's look at this activity hierarchy, and let me just say, this is a range. You know, hierarchy means (laughs) uh, how does it progress? From uh, here, I'm starting with activities that are pretty simple and and really reach the widest possible range of children and interest. And in my opinion, these are the things that are applicable and are relative for nearly every kid you'll see. So in other words, these are the things that work. <laughs> these are what I found in my uh, over 20-year career uh, that that really, really appeal to the widest range of toddlers. And let me just say with this hierarchy, as we move down this list, things get more challenging and more complex. And so let me also say before we get going here with the specifics is w- the concept that I talk about all the time, especially in my course, Steps to Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers, the concept of backing up, meaning that anytime a kid doesn't, isn't reaching a goal or doing what you want him to do, after you've given it a good go on your part, after you've given it a lot of effort, and if he's still not making progress, that nearly always means the goal is too hard. And so when that happens, we have to back up. Same philosophy applies here. If one of these kinds of activities is not successful, it usually means that it's too hard. Now, sometimes it means that the adult that we talked about just a second ago isn't quite clear on everything that's going on and there's some things that we can do to change ourselves before we change the child that will make it easier for that child to participate. So it's not 100% that when you don't when you're not seeing results from a child that it's always that it's too hard that it's because it's the child's lack of ability to do what you want him to do. A lot of times it's that the adult needs some tweaking. But in general, if you're putting forth a good effort and you pretty much understand what you're doing and the child is still not able to do what you want him to do or isn't participating or for some reason it's just not going very well, always know that even within this hierarchy that we're going to talk about with activities that you should always step back and do that earlier kind of level. I like to organize my therapy sessions in this way or even I guess my overall philosophy in this way because no matter what I'm talking about, whether it's expressive language like that that level, the chart of levels that I've done for building verbal imitation in toddlers, that is that gosh, anytime I'm treating a kid with an expressive issue, that's what I use. That's the treatment methodology because it's pretty clear to me if this isn't working, move back a level. If this is working beautifully, if the kids got it, move on, move up a level. And so it, it gives me a framework and a structure with how I'm, I can gauge what's next. And that's what a lot of times we get kind of confused about. Or, again, particularly when a child has plateaued, when we are not seeing progress for a while and we wonder, what in the world am I going to do? Usually always backing up is a good idea. Or, again, sometimes it could be that a kid 
you know, has outpaced you. He's further along than you think he is, and you think, well, what am I going to do next? Using hierarchies like this and using treatment philosophies where you're looking ahead or backing up will get you on track much more easily than if you're just trying to kind of take a stab in the dark and just fly by the seat of your pants with, well, let me just, you know, sort of imagine what would come next without really having any science-backed, developmentally sound philosophy to hang your hat on. So that's what this activity hierarchy does too. And again, we're talking about how do we choose what we're going to do in therapy? How do we choose the specific toys or the specific activities that we're going to do with a child? So let's just start with the first category here of activities that we would use for toddlers and preschoolers who were late talkers. And again, this really is irrespective of diagnosis. It doesn't really matter if a kid, again, you think he's going to be on the spectrum or you think, gosh, this is just an expressive issue, or maybe it's a big expressive issue. Maybe it's a kid who's apraxic, or maybe this is a kid that you think this is just a general developmental delay, or maybe this is a kid who has, again, a big medical diagnosis. That or, or some kind of syndrome, Down syndrome or cerebral palsy. This activity hierarchy, again, is pretty irrespective of diagnosis. So you can use it and you can tailor it and you can think about it as being useful for all kinds of kids. Here we're just kind of looking at the age group and the general overall developmental level, and then you'll tweak which activities seem appropriate or which category you're going to kind of live in with a kid based on what he's doing developmentally, his interests, his dislikes, his regulatory level, all the things that we talked about last week. And now we're kind of, again, uh, moving forward with let's dig down into specifics. So this first big category is movement activities and toys. So we talked about this last week. Remember when we said that we want to have a move, sit, move, sit, move, sit philosophy in therapy. And remember what we said about that, why movement was so important? Movement works for every kind of, well, usually works. Every time I say a word like every and always and usually, I get scared because I think, oh, somebody's going to email me with an exception. So try not to do that in your mind today. Try not to be that picky. But movement works for lots and lots and lots of kids to change their arousal level or their, particip their participation to be what you want it to be. So meaning that the busy kids, movement calms them down. So after you've given them an opportunity to be crazy and wild and get those willies out, movement helps them settle down and want to move on to the next kind of more a little bit more structured, more refined kind of a sit-down activity, which we'll talk about. So movement works for busy kids, and it also works for low arousal kids. And remember, we talked about those kids last week, the kids who really are not really with you, the kids that are kind of out of it, the kids who we talked about that they may be medicated. And so they may have a seizure disorder or some other kind of medical condition that one of the side effects of their medication is they just feel a little bit off. They're not... And they're not able to tell you, they're not able to say, hey, I'm in a fog. Even something as simple as antihistamines can do that. And so, or let's think about our little friends who are on uh, breathing treatments for asthma. Sometimes 
you know, I've seen kids go either, uh, either way. They can either be bouncing off the walls wild and they're really hyper aroused and they need tons and tons and tons of physical movement to kind of help them settle down, which is kind of how I respond to that kind of medicine. Or they can be really, really sleepy and really, again, you, you know, you feel kind of like, gosh, I just feel like there's this layer of, you know, just funk in there that I can't get through. I wish I could really, really, really get her attention and get her to stay with me. Movement will do that. Movement will help you cross over whatever that barrier happens to be. And so movement activities are, are really the backbone of this whole entire approach because that's what you're always going to go back to or, or what I found to be more helpful with toddlers and preschoolers than anything, particularly when they have these little regulatory issues. And again, it could be a sensory processing difference. You know, their little bodies need to move, move, move so that they can tell where they are in space. It could be, um, and it could just be situational, meaning that they're just having a bad day. And so you might need to use more or less movement depending on what that kid, kid needs for that particular day. So let's talk about what movement activities are. And certainly, we can use traditional movement activities like playing outside. So playground equipment like on a swing or on a slide or on a trampoline, anything like that. But more often than not during therapy, I'm using a toy or an activity that includes movement as part of the play. So let's think about some activities. My favorite ones <laughs> are bubbles. And I don't really sit and calmly pop bubbles with children. Most of the time when I'm playing bubbles with kids, we are up and we are kicking bubbles. And we are, you know, if you've listened to this example before, if you've heard me speak live, you know, somebody will always mention bubbles. Somehow this always gets brought into the conversation. So I like to pow, pow, pow bubbles, meaning that I use my fist and hit them or karate chop them or do something that's more novel and a little more active so that really, really would engage a child's whole little body and his whole little system. And can you just see how that would make a kid who's, who's having trouble staying with you really want to be with you because you are giving him what his little body needs that he's going to try to get on his own anyway by running away from you? <laughs> but you can use an activity like this to really keep him with you. And you're still addressing your language targets, you know. And, again, this is kind of a whole separate issue, but it might be a sign that you're trying to get or a word or some kind of early vocalization. And you'll layer your goal, whatever your speech therapy goal happens to be. It could be that a kid's working on receptive language. You want him to follow some directions, but you've got to use a movement activity to really, really keep him with you. So you may be saying things like, you know, let's pop bubbles. Get it with your foot. Where's your foot? Get it. You know, get it, get it. Show me your foot. Oh, stop it. Stop it with your foot. And so again, there you're working on a receptive goal, you're targeting body parts. You're, you're working on following directions, understanding simple commands, but you put it in the context of an activity and a toy that he's more likely to participate in, let's say, than a book or something that, that at that point in time you're going to be able to more 
effectively or efficiently address that goal within the context of an activity that he's more likely to do or that he likes better or that his little system seems to need at that particular moment. So anything like that. Now, balloons are a great activity here, too, with catching balloons and throwing balloons. A lot of times I'll blow up a balloon and not tie it and then let it fly away. That is fun for kids. And so certainly with children who uh, are visual children who really uh, have weaker auditory systems, meaning that they don't always understand a lot of language yet because language hasn't been meaningful for them yet, but they, boy, they, they are on things that they can see. So these are kids who like to play games on their screens or who like to watch DVDs or movies. You know, these are kids that kind of might get stuck on a ceiling fan. <laughs> Do you know what I mean by that? They're really watching that ceiling fan or they love light and spinning toys. So they're little visual systems. That that's That's a strength for them. And so they may do better and stay with you better and participate better when you're giving them not only that movement activity that they need, and, and what would the movement be in a game with the balloons like I just described? Well, after you let the balloon go, they're going to look at it and watch it and see where it went. And then more often than not, they are going to try to beat you to get the balloon. And, you know, all kinds of yuckiness can ensue after that with them trying to blow with the balloon. And then, you know, you're going to have to blow the balloon that they put their little mouth on. You know, just try to put your germiness aside for a minute and go with what is more fun for the kid or beat them there so that you can be the only one who blows. But my point here is you're really combining all of their strengths there. You know that they need movement and you know that they're a visual learner. So can you see how that would work for a lot of kids? Other kinds of toys that I like here, um, bowling sets. I have bowlers <laughs> all the time on my caseload. And again, don't get too whacked out about, I have to get all 10 bowling pins set up correctly before we roll the ball. Don't be that picky, especially with a toddler. They're never probably going to wait for you to get everything set up. You'll lose them in between that. But set up a few and then, you know, run across the room and, and roll the ball across. And, again, this might be, you know, the child might beat you to knocking down the pins, which happens more often than not with them kicking them over or trying to throw them or whatever. But you can still have a really good time, and that child is up and moving around. Uh, other fun games, really popular one, Elephant is a great game. It's been around for a long time. That's an, um, it, the toy is shaped like an elephant, and the trunk is plastic, and it blows butterflies out of the trunk. And so you have to catch, you're supposed to catch it with the net, but most of the time my little friends do not have enough motor coordination to do that. So we just talk about the butterflies and try to catch the butterflies with our hands or in some way, you know, attack the butterflies. I've had friend, little friends who think it's funny to kind of hit the butterflies away or bat them away. So that's another fun one here. Even um, little toys, I call them launcher toys. I don't know if that's how you refer to them, but any kind of toy that that the nature of the toy is for it to fly away or roll away, and then the child has to go back and get it. My favorite one of these toys is a Hot Wheels motorcycle set, and I have bought them obsessively. I probably have, gosh, six or seven, maybe even more sets of those because I'm always scared they're going to break or I'll lose one, I'll leave it at a kid's house, and then I never get it back or, you know, all the things that happen. But it's a, it's a set where – 
you put the motorcycles on the toy and then you release, you pull the handle back and then the motorcycles roll across the room by themselves, which is a ton of fun for kids. And it's kind of cool because, you know, it's a motorcycle versus a toy car or a toy because they're, (laughs) excuse me, probably have more experience playing with. So there's a lot more novelty there. But there's so many little Hot Wheels or Matchbox or any kind of little sets like that that you can get the cars where they're they're launched, where they roll away from you. So look for something like that. And again, here the movement piece is what? It's the kid going and getting the car or the motorcycle. And the best part is most of the time they cannot play with that or activate that toy on their own. The fine motor control or the how you make it work really involves a lever or some movement that toddlers can't always do on their own. And that is a very good thing. And why is that? Because that sets up the need for you to be there. It creates that opportunity for a child to communicate with you. Now, sometimes parents will kind of jump in and try to do everything for a kid and not really give a kid an opportunity to communicate. And if kid's falling apart, he's having a complete meltdown because the, the motorcycle won't work, Certainly you want to jump in there and help them do that. But more often than not with these kinds of toys, if you will just sit back a little bit and let the kid figure out that he needs you, he'll initiate communication with you. So he'll either bring you the toy or he will look at you and make eye contact as if to say, aren't you going to fix this for me? Or a kid who's terrible with following a command like give it to me, there's because either he doesn't understand it or temperamentally he may be a little bit of a hoarder, meaning that he wants to hang on to everything for dear life and doesn't really want to let you get involved. Uh, Toys like this and activities like this really, really, really set the stage for a child to know, gosh, I've got to have somebody here to communicate with me. I've got to have somebody here to help me. So, again, it's an excellent opportunity for us to use little bit of environmental sabotage, meaning that we're not going to jump in and do the next thing for him. We're going to wait and give him an opportunity to communicate. And so launcher toys like that are super, super um, examples. And I'm sure you can find them. Just, you know, walk around Walmart or Target or Toys R Us or wherever you buy your toys or, you know, browse through Amazon and find some toys (laughs) that are a little, that have a movement component, meaning they roll away, they fly away. There used to be a toy called um, Sky Dancer, I think was the name of it. And if you are a longtime listener to the podcast, you know, a lot of our first shows were talking about (laughs) how fun this toy was, but how we were scared that we might injure the child who was using the toy and it, that toy eventually got pulled from the market because there were injuries and things. But it was a great toy because it was a little like a Barbie that you put on a, a, a launcher, for lack of a better word. You put it on a little a stand and then you pull the string and then the toy flew off. And I've still seen some toys like this in specialty toy shops, uh, even like at Cracker Barrel. There's some kind of little fairy dancer or something like that that they sell over in that restaurant in the product section. So look for little things like that where the child needs you. Uh, Back to balloons, you can use those pump-up balloon pumpers that where the child really can't fit the balloon on the end of the pumper, and they certainly can't activate that 
back and forth pumping action that you would need to pump air into that balloon. So look for things like that so that the child needs you to do it. So there's the communication piece there and (laughs) there's the movement piece. So that's a super, super way to provide children the movement that they need to help them regulate and to want to stay with you and stay engaged with you. And remember why we're saying this. Kids' little systems need to be set or regulated or ready to pay attention. And so sometimes when they're sitting in the same place for a long period of time, which for a toddler might be two minutes, (laughs) they need that extra little bump from having to get up and do something and not sit perfectly still. All right, as you can hear, my voice is really struggling, so let me pause just a second to take a drink. All right, it's fall. It's allergy season in Kentucky, so you can certainly hear that in my voice today. All right, so that was the first category of activities, the first little place that we started with this activity hierarchy for toddlers. And remember what I've already said a couple of times now. This is where you're going to go back to. If you feel like you're losing a kid's attention, no matter how many categories of play that you kind of blow through, you know, there are eight that we're going to talk about here that I use. So even if you're on up to number four, things from number six, and you feel like you're losing a kid, back up as much as you want to, but more often than not, I go back to these movement activities. So meaning these other things that we're going to talk about, if if a kid is tired of that or if I just need to for him to move on to a new activity for whatever reason, if we can't stay with a toy or an activity within one of these other levels, we're always going to go back to movement because that's going to be kind of the backbone that we talked about earlier, you know, how we'll alternate movement activities with another kind of activity. So that was number one. Hold these ideas there, kind of think about it. And let me just say this too. You may have kids that really don't need to be as active. Kids who don't have to run around the room, you know, every five minutes and who can really stay with you for 10 or 15 or 20 minutes. You know, that is a gift (laughs) when we get that. It could be that your movement activity for some of these kids needs to be just something little like a flat ball. Boy, every time I show this uh, therapy clip with a flat ball in a conference or a course that I'm teaching live and people haven't seen it before, you can almost hear a gasp from the audience because, you know, it's exciting. And a flat ball, and I've talked about it a lot on the show, and if if you don't have one, this is something that you need to, again, buy today <laughs> because it is that good, but it's P-H-L-A-T, and it's a ball that collapses, but then once you, you push it and then, you know, a little bit of time will go by and then it goes back to the original ball shape on its own. So a ton of fun for kids. But even something like that really is a movement activity. And why would I count it as a movement activity? Because if the child is activating the ball, meaning they are pushing the ball flat, they're getting some movement through their little bodies. So any activity that would provide a difference in pressure or a difference in how a child is using his hands or some difference than just a little uh, routine use of his hands to play with some of these other activities, even even something like Play-Doh. 
might be um, considered a movement activity for some children if they're pretty rough with it. You know, if they're standing up, you know, if you're doing this at a table or even on the floor and they are really pounding that Play-Doh with their hands or putting both of their hands on the Play-Doh and really pushing with all their might, that's a movement activity. So you, it doesn't always have to be this crazy get up and lose complete control but it could just be some kind of change. And I'm sure our OT friends would have a, a, a better name for that than me. <laughs> but let's just say that they're using their hands with pressure. And so that's look for toys that provide an opportunity for that because it's very, very regulating for kids to be able to get those, those changes in their little bodies. All right, so that was number one. That was our movement activities. And those were our movement activities. And again, remember that, for everybody. It's relative to everybody. It almost works for every single toddler or preschooler that you would see because that's one of the the things that little kids like to do. Get up and move around and, and do something with their whole little bodies. And remember that's how we develop all kinds of control. We always start with with big gross motor kinds of activities and control before it becomes more refined or sit down play and um things that you, again, would be more fine motor uh, in nature. So there's that's for our therapist friends. Some parents who are listening might be a little bit confused by that. But just just remember, you know, the bigger we go with these kinds of movement things, the more likely we are to engage and maintain a child's attention. All right, let's move on to the second category. Here we're talking about uh, social games and music. So anything that would be song-like or game-like. Now, why do social games and music work? And again, this is pretty expansive with our reach here, meaning that it works for almost every kind of kid. And even for kids who don't like to sing or who don't like for you to sing, those kids still usually like songs or music they just might not enjoy. Uh, the auditory sensation that they get when you sing. And we've talked a lot about that. And, you know, for those kinds of kids, what do you do? Do you stop singing? No. You desensitize their little systems. You might try singing softer. You might try chanting. So instead of singing, you know, twinkle, twinkle, little star, you might chant, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. And that's pretty engaging for children, especially if they've not really heard that before. So there's an element of novelty there. So any kind of little song or game that you're going to introduce naturally will help a child interact with you. And I always use that word engage with you. So stay with you. So pay attention to you, want to be with you. So this is our second kind of category. And let me just say, again, for our little friends with autism, this should be their overall goal, their first long-term big area goal or their, their, their biggest focus with you is learning how to enjoy being with other people, learning how to consistently stay and be with other people because we know that our little guys who have red flags for autism tend to avoid that kind of one-on-one -on -one interaction. Now, sometimes they're fantastic with their parents. Uh, a lot of times they're hyper-connected almost to their moms, and that is a very good thing. Don't ever let anybody tell you that it's not. But here we really need children for the purposes of learning how to communicate to interact with a variety of people. So for lots of our little friends 
who are on our caseloads who are struggling with social interaction, social games and movement may be all that you do with the kid for weeks and weeks. I've had little clients that that's all that I've done for months to really get that one-on-one, back-and-forth, reciprocal interaction going, meaning that they like me. (laughs) They want to be with me. They want to do things with me. Now, sometimes you'll have children, and this thankfully only happens rarely, but you will have children that are so, um, struggle so mightily in this area that you'll have to do a lot of this with mom, meaning that that you really need to get that social interaction piece and this play piece during social games going consistently with mom and with dad and with siblings or the nanny or the grandmother, whoever you see the child with. You, that child may not be able to let you in yet. And I, I had this happen last year with a little boy that I saw uh, over the last year, and he's a kid that's local, so I've seen him regularly rather than consultatively. And he was really, really like that. If you have ordered my course, Is It Autism? Uh, recognizing and treating toddlers and preschoolers with red flags for ASD, you saw a lot of him in that course. And I, I had to do only coaching with that child with telling mom, hey, do this, try this, you know, say this because he was so reluctant to participate with anybody outside of mom. And so, and if mom was there, it pretty much guaranteed that he would not interact with other people. And that was a little disconcerting. You know, they had not to diverge too much from what we're talking about today, but that's one of the reasons that they had a home therapy program going at the beginning. And because the therapist had such a hard time engaging his attention, they moved into a clinical setting thinking, well, we're not even going to let mom do it. And this actually I think was mom's idea. We just won't even have mom there so that he learns to connect with the therapist. Uh, even more, and I, I can understand that rationale a little bit, but the best approach is really teaching mom how to do all of these things because if he has a better connection with her than he would ever hope to have with anybody else at this point in his development, your time is going to be better spent teaching and mom exactly what to do. But eventually, you want those kids expanding their circles and expanding who they'll interact with and who they'll engage with. Because communication really is a two-way street. You really need that other person there. And you need children to be able to learn how to communicate with a variety of people. Now, the most important people are always going to be most important. (laughs) But, you know, eventually we do want them learning how to interact with their little peers so that they make friends, learning how to interact with other adults so that school isn't as difficult for them as it could be for a child who has really, really limited social interaction and engagement skills with other people. So it's an important, important part. So social games and music. The other thing that social games will do, it's kind of an extension of this movement activity that we've talked about, but now you're just kind of putting it to music, and it is a little bit more interactive because lots of times you don't have a toy. Like we talked about in the previous section with the movement activities and toys, we had some. We had another object there. We had bubbles. We had balloons. We had a ball. We had bowling. We had those little motorcycles and cars and the games that we were using. And so there's still something else for the kid to focus on. But especially when we're talking about this, this category, the social games and music, we want the kid to focus on us. 
We want to really build that back and forth reciprocity, that turn taking, meaning that he and joint attention, you know, he looks at me. He, he sees what I'm noticing. I notice what he's noticing. We learn how to share and experience together. And if this is a new kind of concept for you, if you've never thought about that, go back and listen to the series that I did at the beginning of the year called The 11 Skills That a Child Must Master Before Words Emerge. That was like a 16-show podcast series where we really looked at and tease out all of the different things that a child has to be able to do before we can consistently hear him use words meaningfully. Did you get all those little <laughs> descriptors in there? Consistently meaning that he does it all the time and use words, you know, the talking piece, and then meaningfully, meaning that it's not just something he echoed. It's not just something he's heard and is repeating rotely. It's a a word that he's using to let you know how what he wants or how he feels or how or respond to something that you've asked about him. And so we do need as a foundation for those skills for children to learn how to participate with another person. And so social games treat this area like no other strategy that you will use. So now every time I teach a course live, I spend a lot of time talking about social games, and I always ask the participants, I always say that every therapist who works in early intervention or any kind of pediatric therapy service should have 10 to 15 social games that they know, hands down, that they don't have to go and, you know, flip through a therapy manual or go look at their little notes that they jotted down for the session or whatever. You need to have 10 to 15 games that you can pull out and use no matter where you are and no matter who you're working with, whether it's one kid one-on-one -on -one or whether you have, you're in a family's home with the kid you're treating and mom and dad and, you know, seven other kids who are all in there from the neighborhood and everybody has decided that we're all going to do speech therapy today. So you need some games and some little play routines that you can pull out and modify, specifically uh, geared toward whatever situation you're in with the child and or his people who are there with you. And so if you're listening right now and you don't, you know, you're thinking, well, gosh, I, you know, gosh, I know how to play peekaboo and hmm, I know patty cake. Those are social games, and that's great, but you need more oomph. <laughs> you need a bigger repertoire of these kinds of little things, again, that you can do with a kid. Now, social games are kind of like movement activities in that the bet, you know, a, a one a fantastic way to use a social game is to hook a child's attention when you are losing him. So when you feel like whatever else you're doing has not been successful and you want to help him re-engage with you, you want to help him remember that you are there and care that you are there, a social game is a great, great way to do that. Now, I've written a whole book about social games and music. Teach Me to Play With You is the therapy manual that really outlines how to get this going with kids. I love this book. I wrote it in 2010, and I still use it every day that I work with kids, and I certainly use it every day that I'm teaching other people how to work with kids because I've taken all of those little social games and routines and early toys and written out step by step by step by step how you can move a kid through 
any of these little games and you're you're gradually increasing your expectations during these little games meaning that you want him at the beginning just to kind of be with you and then you know you want you want to see some kind of response and sometimes the response is just him smiling sometimes it's that he's recognizing the game sometimes it's that he's doing something and so again it walks you through that whole thing so if you don't have 10 to 15 social games and you're, you need some ideas on that, get your hands on that book because it will dramatically change how effective you are in treating and in using social games and music. But for those of you who are pretty skilled with that, let's just talk about how that can be effective or let's just think about what your games are and what you're accomplishing with that. And remember, you're using it to teach a child to interact with you, but you're also doing the same thing that we did back with movement activities. You're giving a child, a, a, you're meeting his sensory system needs. You are giving him that kind of movement bump, but again, he's learning that, hey, this doesn't have to be with a toy. This doesn't have to be outside on the slide, or she doesn't have to push me in the swing. She can do these fun things with me right now that make me feel good, and I want to stay with her and do more things with her. And so this is when you really get pretty crafty uh, with your social games, and this is when, again, a parent might look at a therapist and say, oh, she's good with kids or she's good at her job, but they're not thinking through all of the, the reasons that a therapist might be using a particular social game. And let's just kind of – let me just give you some examples. Let's just say – that I know that I have a kid who likes movement and who likes deep pressure. And one of our big goals is I want him to stay with me. I want him to learn how to interact with me for more than 20 seconds. <laughs> and I want his attention focused on me rather than focused on the toy. And so let's say if we have a kid who's, who is really struggling with joint attention, meaning that once a toy is brought out, focused on the toy, he, he, you know, he no longer really attends to the other adults in the room. He's just all about that toy. For those kinds of kids, you know, you probably need to put the toys away and just focus on social games so they learn to pay more attention to people. And so for that kind of kid, I might do games like at the beginning, like Ready, Set, Go, where you know, we're going to run together, but part of the fun part of the game is that I catch him and that I do something to give him that deep pressure that he's so craving. So it might be hugging him real tight. It might be gently slamming him on the couch <laughs> so that he, you know, when I've caught him, I've got somewhere to kind of throw him. It might just be that I bear hug him real big. But again, he's learning to include me in that. And he's including me as he runs and he's learning that she, you know, Laura's going to give me this. And again, if you're a parent, you're doing these same things. He's learning, hey, it's fun for mama to catch me. This is fun. We do this over and over and over. So you might start with a game like that that's pretty, pretty um, active where you're running, and then he likes getting caught. And then you might move to a game where you're still giving him that input, like ride a little horsey or row, row your boat, where you're putting him on your lap so he's staying with you. You're bouncing him or rocking him back and forth so he's getting that movement piece. The language piece there is that, you know, you're building verbal routines. You're using the same little song and the same little rhyme over and over and over. And, again, this is a skilled process, meaning that as a therapist or as a parent, you're really thinking, you know, my goal here is for him to stay with me. My goal here is for him to anticipate what comes next? My goal here is for him to remember this routine and for him to learn the words, even if he's not saying it yet. You can tell when a child 
when a game has become familiar to a child and you know that learning's going on, that he remembers it from episode to episode to episode of play. So social games, again, can accomplish so many goals, and that's our second little category when we're talking about this activity hierarchy for toddlers. Let's move on and get the next kind, and then I think that this will do it for this show because we only have uh, less than 10 minutes left. The next category in our activity hierarchy for toddlers, um, oh, let me back up, though, before we leave social games because that's so near and dear to my heart. You want to, again, have a kid, give a kid an opportunity to do something within that. So at the beginning, we talked about games like Ring Around the Rosies or even something like Swinging in a Blanket or you you put the kid in a laundry basket and you row in back and forth, all of those things. But eventually, you do want a kid really doing his part so that he begins to participate and hopefully even initiate these kinds of routines. So you do move on to little things that would be more uh, encompassed in the music side of this where there are songs like um, Itsy Bitsy Spider or um, Wheels on the Bus, songs where you have hand motions because you gradually want to keep upping the ante where a child has more and more and more to do. Even if he's not talking yet, he's still using gestures or body movements. And that, again, is a way to move him along even within this category of play so that you still want to keep upping the ante and keep seeing greater participation and give him even more things that are harder for him to do so that he can learn what his part of that. And again, what are you doing when you're when you're working on things like this? You're building that turn taking. You're building that whole foundation for communication, which is, you know, I do something, you do something. You do something, you initiate, I respond. Then you say something again and then it's my turn to respond again. So you see that back and forth, that turn taking piece. We want to see that and we want to accomplish that. And again, we have to do it well before we get to words. We have to have other nonverbal ways for a child to begin to take his turn in this interactive duo that we're having when we communicate. And social games and music are a great way to do that. And again, I could probably do 25 shows on this one topic. We are moving on. But I did want to mention how even within the context of social games, you need to keep upping the ante and increasing your expectations for what a child's part is so that you move him along developmentally, even as, even within this one kind of category or activity group that we're talking about. All right, so now let's move on <laughs> to the next category in this activity hierarchy for toddlers and preschoolers. Let's start to talk about toys and things that look more like play with toys. Now, we did this a little bit back in our first category when we were talking about movement activities and toys. But remember, the purpose there really wasn't playing with a toy. The purpose there was regulatory, meaning that we were having the child move around just to address his three needs. Here, we're having him use the toy to really learn how to interact and uh, and play, basically. We We want him to learn how to methodically Use a toy in the way that it was intended. Now, so many of our little friends have difficulty with this. They don't seem to like toys. And I've done a lot of shows, especially back in the series that we finished up earlier this year, The 11 Skills Toddlers Must Master Before Words Emerge. 
we talked a lot about learning how to play with toys and how we do that. So go back and listen to those shows. If you are working with a child or if your own child doesn't appear to like toys, listen to that show because a lot of times it's not that he doesn't like a toy. It's that he doesn't know what to do with the toy. And so we have to learn how to shape and teach play so that that does become meaningful. And again, why is this so important? It does show a progression in a child's ability to learn and to remember. And so this is why play is so closely tied to a child's cognition or how he learns. Or uh, if you're a parent and that's still too technical, for lack of a better word, how smart he is, how he remembers things, how he can uh, learn the function of something, you know, what am I supposed to do with this toy? What comes next? And so here, this, all these next activities in some way revolve around toy use or learning how to play. The first kind of toy that we look at with a kid are usually cause and effect toys. And this is, this is what I mean by cause and effect, meaning that I do something and that I then learn that I caused the next action or the effect to happen. And again, it's not that the kid, what we're looking for here is not that the kid initially does the first thing to get play going. But we are, that's important, and we'll have kids who aren't even there yet, and so they don't know to push the button or open the door or put something in, they don't have that. And so that is an important piece. And we, we have to get there first because unless we do the first part, we can't get to the next part. But the most important part here is the effect because lots of our little guys, I say this and I say it lovingly, they get stuck on cause, <laughs> meaning they know how to push the button in the app, but they don't really notice what comes after that. And that's kind of problematic because some kids can become uh, repetitive or self-stimulatory with these kinds of movements, meaning that they'll just push the same button over and over and over and over and over and over and over again with very little regard for what comes next. And so that really is a red flag. So when you have a kid that's like that, you got to work on it and help them learn to anticipate that next part or that next sequence of what would what would happen next? And you do want a kid, again, to get that first part and to learn that he's creating with his movement with play the, the part that does come next. And so he's learning intentionality. He's learning I can do something to get something. And, guys, if a kid doesn't have that, they're never going to be able to meaningfully use signs or words or pictures or whatever because they don't understand that what they do creates that next thing that happens. They don't understand that if I yell mama, she's going to come and take care of whatever this need is that I have. Or they don't learn that I can take this picture to my dad and he give me you know what it is so it doesn't it's not just tied to talking it's tied to communicating so we have to have kids learn that they control their little worlds and that they can be very purposeful and very intentional with what they do and again that serves as the cognitive foundation for language and this really does back all the way up to cause and effect toys and so teaching a kid how to play with these kinds of toys, it's really, really critical. And so if you don't have, if you have a kid on your caseload who's not doing that, even if you're the speech therapist, well before you get to talking, you need to be back <laughs> 
working at this level and helping a child really, really learn how to play because it sets the entire foundation for communication. All right, I did not get finished with all that I want to say about cause and effect toys, so we are going to pick up here next week, start with my favorite toys in this category, and let me give you some specific recommendations. And then I'm going to teach you what to do if that's still too hard. So join me for uh, next week's show. Thanks so much and have a great week. Bye-bye.